That's not fair. Uh, when was the last time you heard uh, or said or thought those words? It's almost like a universal human word, aren't they? Everyone has said it or heard it at some point. That's not fair. Uh, from the little kids at the playground uh, uh, complaining about not getting their turns more than their older siblings, uh, to a family sitting down in despair after losing their hard-earned first house to a storm. Uh, Across various life experiences, we have a deep-seated sense that justice ought to be done, that life ought to be fair for everyone, that we we expect goodness to prevail. It's a strange thing. Now, on the pillar of the New York State Supreme Courthouse in Manhattan are the words written, I don't know whether you can see it, but you might know it already, these words. The true administration of justice is the firmest pillar of good government. Justice has to be the pillar that holds government if it's got to be good. Now, I I don't know if everyone would agree that 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 is precisely what's being done in America or around the world, but I reckon everyone would at least agree that that is what ought to be done. Uh, the higher the position people are, the more authority they will, the more important justice is. It's one thing for a, some no-name guy on the streets to be unjust. I mean, that's still sad. He ought to be just. But we don't you know, care too much. But it is another thing for the judge of a Supreme Court to be unjust. Like, we'll overturn governments for that. We'll expose corruption because it matters. Now, if so... What if God is unjust or unfair? That's a scandalous but important question, isn't it? That has been one of Job's questions in his suffering all along. And basically, he he charges, he comes very close to charging God of being unjust. And it's a serious matter. If God, not only the highest court, uh, Supreme Court of Australia, but the judge of the Supreme Court of the universe is corrupt, then what hope is there? And that's the existential crisis Job has been going through all along. And it's very important for each and every one of us that we get this question right, because if we cannot, uh, with the deep-seated conviction of our heart, declare that God is just and he is good, our faith will suffer one way or another. If I feel that God has been unfair to me in his dealings with me, whether it be in my health or my family, my relationships, if I think that God has been malicious to me and cruel to me in giving me sickness, bereavement, or mental illness, or difficult upbringing, childhood trauma, then it's very difficult not to have hard thoughts about God. When you become suspicious of God's justice, his goodness... Sooner or later, your faith will be harmed. Uh, You may still believe in God, but simply out of terror. I've met a lot of those, uh, of young people growing up at church in the afternoon congregation. I believe in God, but simply out of a terror that he will afflict me. You may still come along to church and do Christian things, but your obedience will simply be driven out of duty, not through joy. Uh, You may serve other people, but not from love, 
but from cynicism and resentment. So it is absolutely essential that we are convinced of God's justice and goodness, and I think this is what Elihu would agree with us. And that is the central concern of the Elihu speeches in Job chapters 32 to 37. The hope of the world and also possibility of every human being's faith in God depends on this, the justice of God. And now from the outset, notice the emphasis on justification or issue of justice in Elihu's introduction by the narrator in chapter 32. I'm going to flip back and forth. So I've prepared the, uh, most of the Bible verses for you on the screen. So if you're a slow Bible flipper, uh, just, just pay attention to the front. Uh, Job 32, he says, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous. He, he thinks he is justified, just in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burnt with anger. He burnt with anger at Job because he declared himself justified more than God. Then when Elihu starts speaking, he takes up the issue of justice repeatedly. So chapter 33, verse 12, Behold, in this you're not right, or you're not justified, you're not just. I'll answer you, for God is greater than man, or I think uh, greater meaning God is more just than man. Now 33, verse 32, If you have any words, answer me, speak, for I desire to justify you. So Elihu wants Job to stand in right relationship with God. Uh, 34 verse 5, for Job had said, I am in the right. I am justified and God has taken away my justification. So the central issue of Elihu is the question of God's justice. Is God just or good or is he malevolent, arbitrary and cruel? So Elihu begins to answer this question for Job and for all of us and as well as the three friends who are listening in and others. But before we look at Elihu's words in more detail, I think it's worth asking how we are to listen to Elihu. Now, correct me if I'm mistaken, but would you just raise your hands if you have ever heard a sermon on Elihu in your life? This would be very interesting because that there are uh, some of you, yeah, yeah, couple there, but there's about three people uh, out of a room full of people where uh, many of you have been Christians for a long time. I, th I think. Um, LEU speeches it don't get to preached or taught very much. And one of the reasons for that is it's, it, because it's one of the most difficult part of the Old Testament. Um, but difficult part, we need, to, we need to listen to difficult part of the Bible because I think it reveals our presuppositions and, and God teaches us in that. Having said that, uh, it's good to know why it's difficult. And the reason for that is because Elihu is a divisive figure. What I mean by that is, people are not sure whether Elihu is meant to be read negatively or positively in the book of Job. Uh, in majority commentaries actually take Elihu quite negatively. They, they think he's a young man who is self-righteous. You know, that youthful zeal. You guys all look at this younger generation, the young fool. So they think Elihu is a bit like that. Doesn't know what he's talking about, but getting angry at Job for not being pious enough. Uh, in some of the liberal commentaries, if, if you're a sort that reads Bible commentaries, they, might, they, they would even say, you take away Job chapter 32 to 37, you won't lose anything in book of Job. Uh, in majority evangelical commentaries, I, th I think as uh, kind of Beck alluded earlier in Kids Talk, they kind of try to go a uh, middle way, saying Elihu is neither wholly positive 
no holy negative. So, you know, it's a safe option, isn't it? If you're writing an exam, I reckon that's your bet. Uh, answering your exam, anyways. But I'll lay my card uh, open. I think Elihu is meant to be read positively. Like he doesn't answer everything because because that's what God's speech will, Lord's speech will do at the end of Job. But I think basically Elihu is a positive character whom we must listen and learn in suffering. Let me offer three reasons why I think that. First is the position and length of Elihu's speeches within the book. As you'll know, we've been following the book of Job, and Elihu's speeches come right at the back of Job chapter 28, which which functions a bit like a turning point within the book. After the three cycles of speeches between Job and his three friends, or three enemies, however you want to put it, they were going nowhere, and at the end of Job chapter 28, we heard, fear the Lord, that is the wisdom. Job will not get any wiser than he was in chapters 1 and 2. And Job makes a final speech in chapters 21 to 31, and I think Elihu's speeches come in between that, that 28 and, and Job's final speech and the Lord's speech. And I, th- I think the length of it, the sheer length that's given to Elihu, six chapters of uninterrupted speeches, uh, makes it very difficult, to, uh, it, very difficult to justify if Elihu was simply a negative figure that doesn't add anything from the three friends. A second reason why I think Elihu's words must be heard and accepted positively is because neither Job nor God corrects Elihu at the end. Job does not try to argue with Elihu as he did with the three friends. Uh, We don't exactly know how he reacted, what he looked like, because we're not told. But I think Elihu's speech has started to give him some thought. He's sitting there thinking, assessing the truth of it, and then hear the Lord speak afterwards. Uh, and also, Lord, uh, when he appears at the end of Job, he corrects and rebukes three friends, but he doesn't correct or rebuke Elihu. Uh, on top of that, I think Elihu's self-introduction, uh, introducing himself, <clears throat> is very similar to that of the prophets in the Old Testament. So if you have a look at chapter 32, verse 8, and chapter 33, verse 4, he keeps on making reference to the breath of God, the Spirit of God is in me. And the Almighty has given me words. Of course, there is such a thing as false prophets in the Old Testament, so self-introduction cannot be the sole measure in which you determine the truthfulness of the claim. However, I think there's a good reason to believe that Elihu is speaking the truth there. And finally, I think Elihu actually says something new and different to three friends. Uh, you may need to look at Elihu's speeches in more detail, but I think the crucial difference, if I may put it this way, is this. The friends accused Job that he was suffering because he had sinned in the past. Elihu says that Job had sinned because he was suffering or in his suffering. Do you see the difference? I think so. Elihu is saying it's not true that Job is suffering because he was a sinner. However, it is true that Job had said some untrue things about God, which he shouldn't say. In his suffering, in his weakness, he questioned God's justice, and Elihu is saying, that's not right, and that must be corrected. With that in mind, then, let's have a look at what Elihu says. Uh, What does he say? And for the sake of brevity, I've summarized his main points under three headings, and first... That God is not silent. 
Now, the question of God's presence becomes a pressing matter in times of suffering, doesn't it? You know, when we suffer, it just feels like God is absent and silent. And you just want to pray, I, God, I just want you to, I just want to know that you haven't forgotten me, that you're with me. And, and, and that has been Job's longing. He's been desperate. Uh, and it's, it's the unique pain of a believer, we said. Uh, we said earlier, if you'll remember, suffering is even more painful for Christian believer than an unbeliever. Because unbeliever, you might say it's still painful, but, well, that's life. That's just bad luck. I'm angry because the bad luck has fallen on me, but I've got no other complaints. Whereas for a Christian believer, you believe in the goodness of God and this has happened to you and it hurts. And God doesn't seem to say anything. So Job has been crying in chapter 23, verse 2. Today my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find the Lord, that I might come to him. Again, in verse 8 of chapter 23, I go forward, but he's not there. I look backward to see if he would be there, but he's not there again. As far as Job could see, God was silent and absent, leaving Job to suffer unjust afflictions on his own. But is that right? Eliu gets Job to think. Hang on a minute, Job. God actually does speak. Uh, chapter 33, verse 14, says, God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. That's an idiom. Or well, one way and, and in two means uh, God speaks in more than one way. And it anticipates the similar idiom uh, in chapter 33, verse 29, twice and three times. Saying, Job, you may not perceive it, but just because you don't understand doesn't mean that God is silent and absent. Elihu expands on two of the ways in which he says that God speaks in the following verses. First, Elihu says God speaks through the conscience of man in verses 15 to 18. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds. Elihu uses imageries of dreams, visions, and deep sleep, and so on. And what they have in common is that they are all times of human passivity. You're not active in those times. And I think it's the imagery of a conscience, what we might call guilty conscience. Uh, when we do something wrong, and there is this voice whispering to us, uh, what's I right to say that? Uh, do I need to think about that again? Um, what's go- what was going on in my heart when I, when I did that? You know, that conscience, that, that wonder of human conscience. Uh, Eliu says, God has put in there, and God speaks through human conscience to humanity all the time. Second, way in which God speaks, and this is where Elihu now directs his address to Job a little bit more, is through suffering. So verse 19, man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. In other words, he's saying, Suffering is a word of rebuke, or uh, suffering is a, a, a kind of a reminder or instruction or message from God to the sufferer. Now, it's Elihu right to say this. Now, isn't that what the three friends said? And it's, it's, it's words like this that makes some commentators to think, uh, become suspicious of Elihu. 
Yet, unlike the friends, I don't think Elihu is accusing Job of concealing his sins here, nor does he read Job's suffering as an evidence of his sinfulness. Rather, Elihu's main point is that suffering is a form of God's speech. Now, you may think because you're in such agony and suffering that God is absent and silent, but Elihu is trying to say, but suffering may be, in fact, God's voice. It's not random. God is always purposeful. He's saying something even when we do not perceive it. And similar to his first point, <coughs> excuse me, Elihu goes on to say in verse 28, that God's purpose in suffering is ultimately gracious towards his people. In verse 28 of chapter 33, he has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit. Oh, sorry, chapter 34, isn't it? 33, sorry, thank you. Uh, and my life shall look upon the light. Though we may not get it or see it immediately, and that's true. You know, when you are suffering, it's hard to work out or hear or see anything clearly. But Elie is saying, though you might not get it immediately, God's ultimate purpose is that through it, you have a deepened understanding of God's goodness and mercy towards you. His ultimate process is to vindicate you and to deepen you in your faith. Now, you may still feel uncomfortable about what Elihu says here. Now, what could God possibly speak, and why would God speak through suffering? That's a fair enough question, isn't it? Because suffering is indeed so awful and painful. Now, take sickness, for example. What good can it possibly bring? Now, look around the world today with the pandemic. How and why would God speak through such awful experience. Now, as I wrestled with these questions, I found some of this short pamphlet written by Bishop J.C. Ryle, one of the greatest Anglican bishops of the 19th century, and he wrote this short pamphlet called Sickness. I find it helpful, in which he writes, I know the suffering and pain which sickness involves, I admit the misery and wretchedness which it often brings. And if you know the man, he's a 19th century man, so he's been through it all. He's lost his children in infancy. He's been sick for much of his lifetime, some sort of. But he says, but I cannot regard it as completely evil. Now, why does he say that? He gives four reasons. I'll summarize briefly. He says, first, sickness helps to remind us of death. Most people live as if they were never going to die. They follow business or pleasure or politics as if earth was their eternal home. But suffering awakens us. A second, he says, sickness helps us to uh, um, make us to think seriously of God. Our souls and the world to come. Uh, most people in their days of health can find no time for such thoughts. But even unbelieving sailors in Jonah, you remember those uh, unbelieving sailors in Jonah? When they thought they were going to die, they started crying out for God. They gave them some time for thought. Uh, Three, it says sickness helps to soften our hearts, humble us, and teach us wisdom. 
And finally, he says, sickness helps to test our religion of what sort it is. He says, uh, there are not many on earth who have no religion at all, yet few have a religion that will bear inspection. Most are content with traditions received from their fathers and can give no reason for the hope that is in them. But suffering helps to see if the house that you're built on is on the sand or rock. Now, he finishes with these words. I've got it written on the uh, next slide. Now, I do not say that sickness gives these benefits to everyone who gets sick. It's not making a general, universal thing here. Unfortunately, I can say nothing of the kind. Millions are yearly laid low by illness and restored to health, who evidently learn no lesson from their sick beds and return again to the world. Millions are yearly passing through sickness to the grave and yet receiving no more spiritual impression from it. But to those who humble themselves, it may lend a willing ear to the glad tidings of the world. So long as we have a world in which there is sin, it is a mercy that it is a world in which there is sickness. That's somewhat paradoxical, but he's saying sickness may be God's severe mercy. In a sinful world where we can so easily forget God, so easily fall into the love of the world, suffering can be God's severe mercy. It's never pleasant, but in the hands of the sovereign God, it is always purposeful. And I think Elihu is something similar to Bishop Ryle to Job here. If so, if this is true, Elihu's second point is, Job, do not harden your heart against God. That's his second point. Suffering doesn't excuse hardened heart or sinful attitude towards the Almighty. At a number of points, Elihu takes issues with Job for accusing God's goodness and justice. So, for example, chapter 34, verse 5, Elihu quotes what Job said earlier. He says, For Job had said, I am justified, I am in the right, and God has taken away my, my right. In other words, he's saying, God is being unjust. I am in the right, God is unjust. And Elihu rebukes sharply in verse 7, What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Again, you, you can kind of understand why some commentators think Elihu negatively. It's words like this. It sounds very harsh and over the top. But I think when Elihu says in verse 7, what man is like Job who drinks up scoffing like water and who travels in company of evildoer, I, I don't think he is saying Job himself is wicked and that is the reason for his suffering. Rather, I think he is warning Job. If you keep speaking like this, you're in danger of becoming like a wicked man. See what I'm getting at? Uh, it's actually similar to what Job said to his wife earlier when the tragedy first hit back in chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, remember Job's words uh, uh, to his wife when his wife said, just curse God and die. Do you still keep fearing God and keep your integrity? Job says, wife, you're speaking like one of the foolish men. Remember that? And I think Elihu is saying something similar. In his suffering, 
Job is in danger of succumbing and speaking like foolish people who accuse God's justice and goodness in their suffering. And when you keep hardening your heart in bitterness and resentment, be aware, Job, because you might actually become that. So Job must repent. And in this way, Elihu's call for Job's repentance is quite similar to God's own words later in chapters 38 to 41. And Job ultimately repents, doesn't he? He says to God, I repent in the dust and ashes. Now, I think there is a valuable lesson here for us all to learn. It is certainly not easy to hear or speak words of rebuke in time of suffering. Even a words of a reminder, it's a dangerous thing. It is important that we ought to be compassionate, patient, sympathetic towards those who are suffering, seek to comfort them with the comfort of Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, and be mindful not to speak more than we know. You know, be silent if you don't know what, 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 what right thing to say is. However, suffering, as awful and painful as they are, does not and cannot excuse hardening your heart against God. It cannot excuse a sinful attitude towards God. Ultimately, a call for repentance is necessary. And let me give you an example. Uh, one of my friend's family members suffered from bipolar disorder. Uh, in his worst moments, he would say and do completely socially unacceptable things. And those around him understood that he wasn't entirely in his right mind. And so they, they made room for him. They didn't take everything he said you know, to be what he really meant. They were patient with him and wasn't harsh with him. But they didn't let him do whatever he wanted to all the time. When his condition improved, when he was in right mind, and when there was a right opportunity, they challenged him. They reminded him that he ought not to do that and to keep working at repentance and keep growing in godliness. That call for repentance and godliness is same for us all. And that was necessary and ultimately was a blessing for that family member because it reminded him of God's forgiveness of his sins and also the power and the hope that he shares in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we say and do things that are not right in times of our suffering. Who doesn't? And there's a room for that. And Job, you know, it, it, Elihu listens, listened to Job for 31 chapters, right? You know, so Elihu's advice here in chapter 32, 34, uh, it's not the first thing he's saying to the uh, sufferer with questions. But having heard all that, we cannot and must not remain there. Bitterness and resentment and, and, and being suspicious of God's goodness is a dangerous thing. Uh, suffering doesn't excuse sinful behaviors. As difficult as you and my circumstances become, and I'm not speaking this as a, a, with a young man's bravado, but with fear and trembling as a fellow pilgrim with you, uh, waiting for the new creation, and, but realizing that this world is full of injustice and unexplainable suffering at times, as difficult as that may be, 
we must always seek repentance and trust in God's sovereign ordering of things. Eliu's words, as harsh as it may sound, is a stinging sting of a loving friend who means best for Job. Now, having affirmed that God speaks, he's not silent in suffering, and also having encouraged and urged Job uh, to not harden his heart against God. Now, finally, Eliu's final message to Job is that God's administration of justice is beyond our comprehension. Eliu affirms the certainty of God's justice in a number of ways in quick succession in the rest of chapter 34. So first, uh, chapter 34, verse 10, God's judgment is sure and just. He says, therefore hear me, you men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness. That can't be right. And from the Almighty that he should do wrong. That can't be right. For according to the work of men, he will repay him sooner or later. According to his ways, he will make it befall him. This is the truth. This is the pillar upon which the universe is made. The truth of the creation order, God will not do wickedly. The Almighty will not pervert justice. Then he continues, God judges with no favoritism in verses 18 to 19. He says to king, uh, worthless ones, to nobles, wicked men. He's saying God shows no partiality. Money does not corrupt justice in God's supreme court. And he goes, God judges with no ignorance in verses 21 to 25, for his eyes are on the ways of a man. He sees everything. God's judgment will not miss anything like a human court uh, who often makes strange judgment because it's not beyond reasonable doubt or whatever that means. Uh, God judges with no secrecy in, in verses 26 to 28. He strikes them for their wickedness in a place for all to see. It's not a private matter. God will publicly vindicate the righteous and judge the wicked. Finally, God judges even if he delays or when, even if we do not perceive it, in verses 29 to 30, when he is quiet. In other words, when we can't see him, who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him, whether it be a nation or a man, that a godless man should not reign, that he should not ensnare the people? Now, this, after all, has been Job's problem, hasn't it? God seems to hide his face from Job. As far as Job could see, God doesn't seem to act in justice. But Eliu says, when God hides his face, he's invisible. We can't see what he's up to, what he's doing. Yet even then, you can be sure God acts with justice. We can still trust that God is working to ensure that godless people will not continue forever in their godlessness. Now, this is the theme which Elihu elaborates and illustrates to the end of his speech. Uh, Come with me, with your Bibles this time, uh, to chapter 36, verse 26. You can flip there once because we'll kind of finish at chapter 36 and 37. Elihu says in chapter 36, verse 26, Behold, God is great. We know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. God is greater and beyond our understanding. Uh, We know him not does not mean that we cannot enter into relationship with him, but that he is ultimately beyond our comprehension. God God is so big that you and my small, feeble mind can't grasp all that he's up to. He exists even above and beyond time. And he continues in verse 27. 
God draws up drops of water, they distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Uh, it's quite, the words here are reminiscent to the poem back in chapter 28, right? I think this is one of the reasons why this is meant to be read positively as well, because Eliu's speech has allusion to chapter 28 and also the Lord's speech that is to follow. Uh, Eliu uses the wonderful process of evaporation, condensation, and precipitation of the rain to make his point. He's saying the process of rain, we can't see it, but you know it's happening kind of evaporates, goes up, comes down, uh, waters the earth, and where the rain pours, life comes out. That's, what, that's how God, God is doing all that. And this process is at the same time mysterious, yet intelligible. Uh, he continues in verse 29, and this time with the example of a thunderstorm. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion, Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea, for by these he judges peoples, he gives food in abundance. And like the rain, the thunderstorm has a purpose, and it has a dual purpose. A storm can cause terrible damage as it had done to Job back in chapter 1. But the resulting rainfall from the storm can also lead to fertilization and growth of new life. The same action of God, the same storm, brings both judgment and salvation. It's almost as if God brings salvation through judgment, that the justice and mercy of God meet together in this action in a way that uh, is beyond our human wisdom and comprehension. So Elihu says, the fact that we cannot understand how God does it does not mean that we can accuse God of injustice or evil, or incompetence in his governing of the world. So Elihu makes his final appeal to Job in chapter 37, verses 14 to 20. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Elihu calls upon Job to stop. I mean, sometimes we need to hear that. You know, when you're suffering, you've got millions of questions going on, and no one can get a word to you. You're so angry. Why does God do this? Why I did this, but I'm so bitter, resentful. And just questions keep coming along, and you can't think anyone. Elias says, stop. Stop for a second. And consider the works of God. Lift your eyes to God. Think about God for a second. And he asks the questions. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Uh, Elihu is, uh, by asking these questions, he's just wanting Job to realize how small he is. That as good of a man as Job was, as a, as a great man as, as Job was, he's small. He's a human being. And it says, think about God's unlimited power and wisdom to govern the world. We might not have all the answers, but you can trust him. I think here, we, we don't, see, see, this is another thing. I don't know what the tone of Elihu's voice is, but around here, I think Elihu's tone is like that of a friend, loving friend. 
And what Eliu says to Job here may be illustrated in this way. And I, I, I get this illustration from Christopher Ash. He says, I, I picture a large military campaign. Right? In the course of this campaign, an order comes down to a local commander. But as far as the local commander can understand it, the order will result in heavy casualties for his troops. Therefore, this order seems to him to be a foolish instruction. But the fact is, the carrying out of this order is the only way in which the war can be won. The local commander neither sees the whole picture nor has the authority to command the whole army. Both his knowledge and power are limited. Only the commander-in-chief has the universal grasp of the military realities and the total command of all the troops. Only he can know what to do and how to win the war. Our understanding of justice is very little. Is that true? You know, how much do you and I know, really? I, I must confess, you know, sometimes I leave these comments on social media about things happening around the world. Oh, that's unjust and so on. But what do I know? I know so little. You know, I, I, so, so, I, I know so little, I can't even judge between my two children when they fight. I can't even tell who's telling the truth, who's hiding the truth. And, and even when I do think I know, I don't have the competency to, to judge them righteously, to bring about restored order and health and harmony in the family. But God's understanding and administration of justice is sure and perfect. He knows what to do and how to do it better than you and I could ever imagine or dream. So, when we don't have all the answers, we must still trust him, says Eliu. Now, let's bring it to conclusion. Is God just? Is he fair and good to me? In times of suffering, it's hard not to ask these questions. How can what is so evidently bad like sickness, bereavement, disasters that happen in my life, be squared with my belief that God is good to me? How can God claim to world injustice and goodness when all I can see around me is suffering and evil? If you have those questions, wrestling questions in your heart, can I do what Elihu did? Can you pause for a moment? Can, can we pause for a moment and consider the works of the Lord? Think back to that absolutely worst injustice in judicial history of the world. The most wicked event in whole of human history. There, the Son of God, one greater than Job, one who was not only blameless in his conduct, but was sinless in his entire being, was handed over into the hands of sinners and was crucified and died that cursed death. The proud men and women who thought they could govern the world better than, better than God handed him over to phony trial and charged him. And that was the most awful injustice the world has ever known. 
Yet in God's unbe- uh, 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 unimaginable wisdom and goodness and power, it's through that cosmic injustice God brought about salvation to the ends of the earth, didn't he? Uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, the Apostle Paul tells us that injustice happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Somehow God overruled that most wicked event to find out you and I. So that death and evil will not be the final word upon us, but justification in the, in the sight of God. That you and I will stand justified and glorified. In that God, we can trust. Let's pray. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a righteous judge, that you define goodness and fairness in your universe and we can trust you far more than we can ever trust our own sense of justice. We also thank you for your patience with us that while we were unjust, while we persisted in our sinful rebellion against you, you demonstrated your love towards us in that Christ died for the unjust. We thank and praise for our Lord Jesus who took upon himself the punishment we deserved Our holy judge was judged in our place, and because of him, we are now assured of standing in righteousness before you, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Father, we are weak and forgetful. Our minds are full of self-righteousness and self-importance, and we need you to bring us to repentance. Time and time again, when our souls rise up to grumble and accuse you of injustice, please humble us with the remembrance of Christ's unbelievable love and patience with us and fill us with desire to worship and adore him in every season of our lives. In his precious name we pray. Amen.